following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, well, we're going to land the plane today on the book of Hebrews. We've been uh, looking at this for four weeks now, or this is our fourth week. We're going to finish up the last few chapters. I hope that this has been as useful for you as it's been for me. I feel like this study has been great. I've learned a lot. I even kind of went into it thinking that I I spent some several months just reading through it, and I felt like I probably had a good handle on it, and found out that was probably not the case as I studied. But I'm so glad we've been able to do this study. And again, I hope you've gotten a fraction out of it uh, from as compared to what I've been able to get out of it. So again, our plan is to read through the chapters that we're going to study today. Pietro is going to help me uh, one last time. He's going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into this final section. So go ahead, Pietro. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Pietro. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we just would pray that you would open our eyes to understand your scripture, understand how it speaks to us of you, and Lord, most importantly, I pray that you would uh, generate that affection in our hearts for you as we see who you are and what you've done for us and how we can live in light of that. God, may we not only learn from today, but may we be transformed by the Spirit as we go from here and, and live lives. Um, may we walk by faith as well. I would pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So here we are, book of Hebrews. Let's review what we're looking at here. Uh, the first week we spent in the first section of the book, uh, cha chapter 1 through uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, the main idea is God has spoken to us. He's given us a message. That message came in his son. And the son is uh, obviously the, he's a prophet. Jesus is our better prophet. But he's the son of God uh, because he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's the son of man because he's fully identified with us. The final part of that section is a warning for us to enter into God's rest, to listen to that message and not drift away from it. Then the next two sections, the last two weeks, we've been talking about Jesus as our great high priest in chapters 4, uh, through the end of 4 through the uh, chapter 10. Again, Jesus is our great high priest. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is better than what they had in the Levitical priesthood. And then last week we talked about Jesus' better sacrifice, his better covenant, and the better promises that he brings to us. So the first half of that, Jesus is a better priest. On the second half, the better benefits that he brings to us, which, okay, I'm ahead of myself. Here we go. Never mind. All right. So that's a review. I didn't even need that. Um, that's where we're going. We're going to finish up, as Pietro just read, chapters 11 through the end. What I want to do is I want to kind of get a running start on chapter 11 by just dipping back into chapter 10 really quick, looking at some of the last few verses. Um, I had a conversation with John this morning, but I think if we, if we look at Hebrews chapter 11, this is probably one of the most familiar chapters in this, in this text for us. But I think this is often disconnected from the rest of the book. We kind of say, okay, well, I need to talk about faith or I need a, an example of faith. So I'm going to go to chapter 11, but it still remains pretty disconnected from the rest of the book. So what I want to show, uh, what I intend to show here this morning is how this is used by the author to make his point. So it's very connected to the rest of the book and serves to, uh, to make his point. If you go to chapter 10, verses 32 through 35, and you skim through these verses, you're going to see 
some, a common theme with some of these words. Let me, let me just pick out a few. You've got conflict, suffering, public exposure, insult, persecution, mistreatment, prison, confiscation of property. So we didn't really highlight this a lot and talk about it last week, but we have to, what the author's doing is saying, hey, these are some of the things that you guys have endured in the past. He's pointing out that this group has gone through some pretty rough waters. They've maintained their faith. At this point, it seems like there, there may be some people who are, because of the, the weariness, because this has been so tough, they're tempted to say, you know what, I, th- I think I want to walk away. Um, this, is, this is too much. Verse 36, we see that these people need to endure, they persevere. You could probably use either word there so that they will receive what God has promised. So after saying, look at all that you've been through, all that you've endured for the sake of Jesus, you need to continue. You need to endure and persevere so that at the end, you'll do the will of God and you will receive what he's promised you. The author's exhortation, um, again, to this potentially weary group of believers was to remind them of a better and lasting possessions that they have waiting for them uh, and challenge them not to throw away their confidence. Don't throw away what you've held on to. Don't give that up. Hold on to that. I see also in verse 36 here a uh, kind of a statement that explains where the author is going in the next, for the last few chapters. Uh, essentially, in verse 36 there, we see, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I highlighted that a little bit earlier, but we need to persevere and at the end, we're going to receive what God has promised us. So don't throw away now because you're on the verge of inheriting it. Uh, verse 39, 38 and 39 then combine that with the idea of the need for faith. And those, those who are righteous are going to live by faith. It's the famous quote that Paul likes from Habakkuk, that the righteous will live by faith. Uh, the contrast is that, that those who do not have faith, those who do not believe, are going to be the ones who shrink back. And the text says that, from the, again, this is the quote, there is no, no pleasure. God has no pleasure in that, in that person. So clearly, there's a sense of we want to have that faith, we, we're going to combine that with our perseverance, that faith is going to be what allows us to persevere. So if you will, at the end of chapter 10, I see the main theme. The main thing he's exhorting the people to do is we must have endurance even in the midst of suffering, and that's going to take place through faith. So by faith, we're going to endure even suffering so that we inherit what God is bringing to us. So as we come to the end of chapter 2, we see that he's really suggesting that there's two types of people. There's a group who holds on to the promises, who live by faith, who are pleasing to God. And on the, the other side, the opposite of, uh, to use the language of Hebrews that we've studied, the opposite of drawing near to God is those who were going to take a step back and drift away or uh, shrink back from that. God has no pleasure in such people. So he concludes chapter 10 with these two groups. He says, we are among those who have faith. We're not of that other group that doesn't have faith. We're not the group that, that shrinks back, but we're the group of who are going to have faith. We're going to be like those people with faith. Now, this is a statement about reality, but it's also a, kind of a nudge in that direction, too, in case people were thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe I want to pull back. Maybe I'm not sure. This is kind of a gentle nudge in that direction for these people. So, 
the author is going to argue, hey, I want you to be a part of this group. I want you to be part of this group of people who receive what is promised by faith. So the last, the main point in the last section of Hebrews here is that we have endurance through suffering by faith. If you look, fast forward to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, I'm going to discuss it a little bit more later, but you'll see that this is also the main idea of that section, that Jesus endured, he persevered through suffering as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In other words, Jesus is kind of like the summary person of what he's talking about, which obvious, I mean, Jesus is our, our you know, the focus of our presentation of the gospel. So uh, what we see in Jesus is that life, just the, the, the fullest expression of that life of faith that endured sufferings and inherited what was promised. So the point then being, okay, if in chapter 10 he's making one point, and in chapter 12, at the end of that, he's making the same point. So in between, what's he doing? Well, he wants to talk about who are other people who have also demonstrated that life of faith, who have lived, who have endured even suffering by faith and inherited the promises that God made for them. That's where our chapter 11 here comes in and uh, gives us a, a real sense of what living by faith is going to look like in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different examples. So as we jump into chapter 11, we see that the author starts with, uh, if you will, sort of a definition. It's, it's more of just a working definition of, like, this is what faith looks like. Um, I want to point out that there's, there's kind of two sides to this coin of faith. On the one hand, you could go uh, interpret this idea, this definition of faith, more of an objective reality. Uh, on the other hand, you could do more of a subjective idea. Let me, I'll explain that in just a minute. But the bottom line is I think they're pretty complementary. I think if we were to look at the King James Version of this, this, uh, this verse, Hebrews 11.1, 1, we see that they, it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's, that's a little bit different from the, uh, the English Standard Version or maybe what you have in front of you. But this gives more of the idea of the objective side of faith is Taking, is taking hold of reality. There's an objective sense here. Um, the word here, faith, is, is the substance of things hoped for. The, that, that word is actually the foundation. Um, so the idea is, it's like, this is a reality. This is the essence. That w- this is the foundation of our hope. Again, this is more of the objective side. If you will, faith takes that which hasn't yet materialized or hasn't been fully realized as being actually real and substantial. Uh, faith is the proof, the evidence for unseen things. I like this because it helps us to see that what God has promised may not have been realized yet. It may, we may not see it, but it doesn't mean it's not real. Okay, so this is... This is, on the one hand, the objective side. Faith operates this way, is what this author wants to point out. It's kind of like, this is a really mundane example that the author uh, would probably just cringe hearing me use. But it's like having the, the title deed to a car, even if the car isn't sitting in your driveway. It means you own it. It means it's yours. You're going to take possession of it, but it's just not, it doesn't happen to be in your driveway. You know, clearly the author has something much greater in mind than a mere stupid car. But it's just kind of an example that, that helps us see 
the objective side of this definition of faith. Uh, on the, uh, the second half of this, the evidence is, is almost a legal word. It's, it's like proof. Uh, so, for example, evidence would speak to a juror who didn't actually see something happen, but nevertheless, he's going to make, he or she is going to make a judgment or bring a verdict based on the evidence that is brought before him. So it's real. He just, he or she, again, just didn't see it. But this doesn't mean that, that there's, there's not, that's, it's still substantial. So then that's, that's the objective side because the, the author is wanting us to see that there's this firm foundation. There's this substance to the promises of God. We may not have them in hand yet. But there's, they are real. But then on the other side, the subjective side of this definition of faith, we see that, of course, if I believe that this is real, that this is the foundation of my hope, then, of course, I'm going to feel strongly about it. I'm going to be convinced. I'm going to be assured that these things are real and act on it. So the ideas are complementary. We kind of go both ways. Uh, but I really feel like that helps us see maybe some of the nuances of this definition of faith. Now, here's a, here's a little side note. One thing we have to be careful with, again, this happens when we come into this context and we don't see how it fits in with the rest of the chapter, is it would be easy for us to say, oh, sure, okay, faith. Um, yeah, I believe I have that car, and I'm going to claim it, and I'm going to get that car somehow. That's totally out of bounds from what we've been talking about here. The author has no idea, and again, that's why I said, my earlier example is probably a little bit poor, but the author is not talking about getting possessions in the sense of like a car, house, or things that we in our world particularly um, would value. Look at what these people have just gone through. Suffering, persecution, imprisonment, the confiscation of their goods. The author is not saying, oh, don't worry, you'll get it all back. Just name it, claim it. That's not what he's interested in. But So we can't run in that direction with definition, Again, let's keep it in context, keep it connected with what, what we see in the rest of the book here. So the book, the book um, is pointing, uh, the author is trying to point his people beyond the, the reality, the, the things that we see, the, the mundane things, and point us to the heavenly realities that are ours, that we're going to lay hold of. Okay, so we started with this real basic definition of faith, and it's going to be a pattern. We're going to see this played out in the lives of a bunch of different people from the Old Testament. Uh, the author is going to show us how these people put this into practice and lived it out in their own life. These people that are mentioned are people who believe that God, what God, they believe what God had said to them. They lived it out, even if uh, some of them experienced some great things, some of them experienced some really, some really negative things. But it didn't matter. They lived it out. They held true because of that foundation that they had for their hope. If I were to break down chapter 11, the, the first section, uh, I think we probably already could already know this. But he says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by uh, faith. This is a huge, again, as we talked about several times in, in, this, in this series, this is a sermon that's being presented to people, and this is a powerful rhetorical device. So this is going to give, kind of building this momentum of, these are, this is how they did this. It was by faith that these things happened. By faith, by faith. So obviously, if 
you know, by the end of this first section, and that, that runs through verse 31, that section, the author's saying, these people did all these things. They accomplished this by faith. I think that's pretty obvious, but I think we want to make sure we see that he's building this case, and there's a sense of momentum, building this up, building this up. There's faith here, and that's what allowed these people to live this way. So in verses 1 through 31, first we have faith in the unseen. In this definition, we talk about believing the evidence for things that are not seen. Noah is mentioned as working and responding to what God, he believed God, even though he hadn't seen that. Then we have, in verses 8 through 22, we have the faith of the patriarchs. And then in 23 through 31, we have the faith of Moses and the people around him. Now, we're, it's a really long chapter. We're, we're somewhat familiar with it. I'm not going to go through each, each verse or each section, really. I just want to point out just a couple things along the way as we uh, move our way through this. First of all, in, in chapter, chapter 11, verse 6, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you want to approach God, you must do so believing that he exists and believing that he's a rewarder of those who pursue him. So people who live this way have this strong conviction that God has a reward for them. And that's what they're going for. And we're going to see that as we go through this chapter. These people believe, they, they looked off beyond what they could see now and look to the future and said, God has promises, God has an inheritance for me, and that is what I'm going to lay hold of. I don't care about what happens in this life because I'm looking forward to my great future with him. It's important in this perspective to know that God himself is our reward in this. Um, yes, there are, I'm sure, wonderful things in heaven that we will enjoy, maybe activities I don't know, but the point is not heaven is heaven because we're going to have awesome things to do or nice food to eat or we're not going to have to worry about being cold or whatever. I mean, those things will be good, but, but God is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. So don't miss that in, the, in all of this. These people are not looking ahead to heaven as if, well, you know, uh, I can stop wandering. Uh, you know, these people are living in tents or whatever. Like The point is, they're looking to the city of God, which is a, a, a way for us to kind of put together in our mind the idea that God dwells there. I get to go dwell with God, to be with God. That, that fellowship with God is not going to be broken. That's what they've got in their mind, not some vague you know, societal understanding of heaven where we sit on clouds and play harps. I mean, that's pretty lame in compared with what they've got in their, in their view. At the end of the day, this is what God created us for. This is his original intention. At the very beginning, when he created heavens and earth and created man and put man in this place in creation, this is what he was, he was going for. He wanted us to live with him, to work out and, and work in his creation in a way that allowed us to have fellowship with him, to know him. So really, that's what we're aiming for. All of, the, all of what Jesus has accomplished for us that we've talked about the last few weeks, his message being, he, being him himself, our, the message to us, becoming our high priest where we can actually have perfection, have clear consciences, and therefore draw near to God. All of that, the whole point of that is not just so we can, okay, now I'm in front of God and I can pray or something. The whole point is, yeah, you're in front of God. You can know him. You can talk with him, fellowship with him. 
And that's going to be realized more fully later when this body of sin and the heavens and earth are stripped away and we all things are restored. Okay, so a little side note. If you look at verses 11 through 13 through 16, the author kind of gives some initial summary comments about the patriarchs. And he wants to point out that on the one hand, they died without inheriting the promises. But he clarifies that they were longing for a heavenly country. They were looking for an eternal home with God, as I've just said in some, in some way. But in some instances, they received their initial promises, like God, think of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, uh, the author wants to talk about Abraham and the fact that he did receive the promise of the son. Well, so in the, on the one hand, he did receive some promises, but he didn't receive the promise of that eternal city of God where he could dwell with God. And that's made pretty clear here by the context that they're looking and longing and working toward that heavenly country. So on the one hand, in, in some places they did receive some promises, but in, they didn't receive that ultimate promise. Um, if, you, if you look through the, the chapter, in verse 33, find it on the page here, in chapter 11, verse 33, it says, some of these people, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Um, they are said to have obtained some promises here. But then, you know, repeating this idea back in 39, uh, chapter 11, verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And again, th- there's this kind of this tension of some people receive the, the promises here on earth, uh, but they're still looking to the greater promise, their greater inheritance that comes, comes ahead. Now, in verses 13 through 16, back up just a little bit, look at the language used here of these patriarchs. They lived as strangers and aliens, even in the very land that had been promised to them. They were looking forward to the city of God. Uh, compare the idea of tents versus a city with foundations. There's a temporary shelter in contrast to that permanent, fortified city. It's, they're not going to be moving about nomadically, but that's a settled, that's a place of rest, if you want to use some language from earlier. Uh, again, it mentions they're, they're foreigners and strangers on earth, and you can almost read that the idea of just second-class citizens, marginalized, not embraced by the culture. They're looking for their, a country of their own, a heavenly country, a better country, with better possessions. At the end of this, he says, God is not ashamed of these people. So on the one hand, the world would be ashamed of such people, could be. But God is not ashamed of these people. And one of the things that he's going to do, he's going to, this is a theme that we see in the last bit of this, this book, is there is the shame... There may be disgrace, there may be marginalization with society as a whole, but we are looking for the approval that comes from a God who is not ashamed to call us his people because he's brought us to him. He's perfected us through the Son and allowed us to dwell with him. So at the end of the day, we are working for the approval of one whose opinion values so much more than the opinion of those around us. Okay, so notice too that throughout this, this chapter of chapter 11, the author is moving the story along chronologically from the earliest days of uh, the history onto the promises of the patriarch and then to the Exodus, Sinai, and the establishment of uh, Israel as a nation. 
part of what he's trying to do is just show that God has had people who responded in faith to what they knew to be true of him, but there's also this sense of development and progression of God bringing revelation along, teaching his people, giving them more, establishing his kingdom, um, and these people all held on by faith. They looked forward to receiving promises, and then we're going to see that capped off in Jesus. Jesus is the capstone of that. couple more points from chapter 11 that I just want to highlight. I'm actually really glad in verses 35 through 38 that the author mentions some of these really horrible things that happen to these people of faith because it would be really tempting to say, yeah, if I just have faith, my life is going to be grand. All these great things are going to happen to me. Um, I'm going to, life is going to be wonderful. And it's just not the case because he wants to show, hey, look, some of these people experience some really rough things. Some of them lost their lives even because they held on to the faith that they had in Christ and in God and his promises. So that's helpful to me because it's not like these people had deficient faith in some way. No, they, they lived by faith and it cost them everything. That's definitely an example for us and for these people. I also think it's really instructive to find guys like Samson and Gideon and Barak in this list. I mean, we we studied through the book of Judges a year or two ago. And man, these guys are train wrecks. They're just <laughs> really train wrecks of people. And yet the author can look at their life and say, yeah, but God used that. God somehow used that small, small bit of faith in their life. To Sometimes he worked in spite of them, but he used them. But they, they in some way, believed God. Um, trusted him and lived out their lives in a way that that pleased God. So I think that helps me to realize I don't have to have everything perfect. Um, I can live a life of faith in spite of my mistakes. Uh, again, we just run to we run to Christ and relish His forgiveness and the the perfection of our conscience, the the clearing of our conscience that we could never have earlier in the other system. These are real people who weren't perfect but they lived by faith, and we can definitely emulate that. So at the end, the author says the world is not worthy of these people, and I talked about that earlier, but these people are disgraced and, and uh, ashamed shamed because of what they, how they lived. There's, they were living as foreigners and strangers. They, again, there's the language of being on a journey, a transitory, looking ahead to something greater, but there's also the idea that they were potentially second-class citizens, not fully immersed in the society around them. In the final reckoning, though, again, it, he hits this idea again that in the eyes of God, these people were not great, disgraced or shamed. God was not ashamed to call them people. Rather, the world was not worthy of such people. So he, he turns the whole thing on its head and says, hey, it's... The, the society around you may have one opinion of these people, but that was not God's. So finally, as we finish chapter 11, see how the author bookends this section, okay? We didn't, I didn't talk about this earlier, but in, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it says, by, particularly, I'm sorry, in verse 2, it says, by it, the people, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, at the very end of this chapter, in verse 39, 
And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So he bookends it by combining the idea of faith with the commendation from God. So by faith, these people received their commendation from God. And again, that's part of the author's strategy here of you do the same. Look for God's commendation uh, by living your life of faith. So the capstone, really, of chapter 11 is chapter 12, 1 through 2. Because Jesus is going to be shown to be basically the, 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 best, the best example of someone who, by faith, endured what he had to endure in order to receive that which was promised to him. Um, he, in, he endured through suffering. It was faith that allowed him to do that. And when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, again, that's bringing us all the way back to chapter 1, where Jesus did all that. He sat down at the right hand of God, and God says, you are my heir, I don't, with all those quotations from, from the Scripture. So Jesus is the greatest example of this. And the author is going to tease this out in the rest of chapter 12 here. So we're supposed to follow his example. On the one hand, we're told, hey, throw off. Throw off hindrances and sins. I don't think the author really has anything particular in mind other than sin is everywhere and we need to throw it off, get rid of it so we can run our race. I I think that he has had in mind the idea of walking away from the faith and and the the, the idea of apostasy that we've seen a couple times. But I think in this case, it's just general. There's Just like Moses had to choose to identify with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, we too need to do the same thing. We have the same view of who God is and what he's worth to cast aside the sin so that we can run our race. As he talks about running the race, again, it's not like I'm trying to be better than you or finish first. The idea is you've got to finish. And that's been a theme that I've highlighted several times in this discussion, but it's great that you're here today, but you've got to finish this race. You've got, to, you've got to take it to the end. You, none of us know how much longer we have. Christ may return. You know, we, we may die tomorrow. Whatever, but we've got to make it to the end. We've got to finish our race. And we're only going to do that through Christ and His grace. There's, a, of course, the idea here of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, obviously, a runner is going to look at the finish line. He's not going to be distracted by other things. Uh, also, there's this idea that we might look to Jesus, uh, look to such and such as a help or an assistance. And so there's also this idea of looking to Jesus or relying on Jesus. He's the one who began your faith, and he's the one who's going to perfect it or complete it. Jesus, he's our, he's our great high priest even. Um, he's our help, our inspiration. So look to him, rely on him in order to finish your race. Then talks about Jesus despising the shame here, scorning the shame. Um, I think we think of this in a vacuum as if Jesus was just kind of off in a corner somewhere being introspective and saying, yeah, I, I really don't think that's, you know, I don't consider that anything because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on and do what I'm supposed to do here. I mean, Jesus experienced the shame, the exposure, and the disgrace on the cross, yet on the one hand, he could say it's nothing because he knew what was coming ahead. He knew that he'd be sitting down at the right hand of God as the heir of God, the one who's going to rule over all things. He did this joyfully. 
these people also are going to have to do the same thing. Despise what you're going through. When somebody confiscates your property or imprisons you, think nothing of that because of what you've got coming, what you've got in, in view and in, in your future. So we can do the same thing. And that's where Jesus, the author goes here. These people are told, hey, consider Jesus' example. Consider someone who endured this much hostility, even to the point of death. We've got to emulate his example. Now, again, when I say that, rem- remember that we're, we're understanding behind all this is not just, okay, go do it. Yes, we must go do it, but we know that we, we must do it by the grace of God, by Jesus' empowerment. We're not going to do this just on our own. So this isn't just, okay, suck it up, go follow Jesus' example. Uh, we need his grace to be able to do that. One of the things that these people, I think, are, are going to be thinking at this point is, okay, if what we have is so great and so glorious, why are we experiencing, experiencing these sufferings? Why are we experiencing hardship? So what the author does is he turns to the book of Proverbs to show that even fathers who love their children discipline them in order that they might grow and learn and develop. In the same way God is treating these people as children, including discipline, so that they might share in God's holiness. So on the one hand, there's horrible things that these people could be experiencing, but on the other hand, they're used by God to train us for righteousness, to train us in holiness, so that we are conformed to his image. Again, Jesus is an example of this. He is the one who, as it says earlier in the book, he was made perfect through what he suffered. So he has definitely blazed the trail here for us, and we're simply following in his, in his example. Verse 7, it's a little bit hard in the, the ESV to understand the fact that this is probably to be taken as a command. It's, it's a real short, basic command, endure. Um, the ESV translates it more as uh, kind of just a statement, but, and, and the, they actually are, are okay to do that. But in this context, it seems like what the author is doing is saying, okay, because of the example of Jesus and because of what you're facing, endure. Endure hardship as discipline. Because basically God is treating you as a child, as, a, as one of his own. If God wasn't doing this to you, it'd be because you're illegitimate. But be, you are his child. So don't think that because you're suffering hardship, you're not his child. He's training you. One of the, the points he makes here is that we can share in God's holiness by being trained and, and disciplined in these ways. As he goes into the next section, he's going to say, Apart from this holiness, no one can see God. So there's this sense of these things are working in our life to train us to be more like Christ so that we then don't miss the path and see and can end up knowing and seeing God. Um, in verse 12 and 13, the end of this section, there's a balancing statement. In, in verse 3, it was said, hey, follow his, follow his example Consider him who endured so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in, in this next section, strengthen yourself, strengthen your arms, strengthen your weak knees. Uh, the idea, one of the ideas here is the dislocation, like a dislocated joint. We kind of get the sense of a coach here saying, put that thing back into, into position. You know, it's dislocated, but put it back in joint. And get out there. Get out back in the game. Get on. Keep going. Strengthen yourself. Put on courage. Get out there. Do it. 
And we have a, this section here of warning that comes up. Um, we've got three exhortations. Well, we've got one main exhortation uh, to pursue peace and holiness. There's three commands that we are to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. See to it that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. Um, point is that we are to make every effort to see this holiness developed in our life. Don't miss the path because of sin in your life. Finally, at the end of chapter 12 here, we, we see that there's this idea, the author's bringing back this idea of what people experienced at Sinai, at Mount Sinai when the law was given. This, it was a terrifying sight. God was speaking to the people. He's speaking on the mountain. There's rumblings, there's shakings. The people are just terrified and they say, hey, we can't stand this anymore. Don't let God talk to us. Send Moses up there because we don't want to talk to God. This is terrifying. So the author is saying, instead of that, we haven't come to something like that. We've come to something much greater. We've come to this heavenly city, this joyful celebration of people getting together at the, at the foot of God's throne at his city. He pulls a lot of themes from the, the rest of this book. He talks about angels. He talks about heaven, heavenly things versus earthly things, the firstborn, judgment, perfection, or completion of the saints, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and Jesus with better blood. So he's pulling actually a lot of ideas that he's come up, he's, we've talked about already in the book, and he's saying, this is what we're coming to. So his final warning is, you know, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. We have this message to us. We have this greater message, this greater promises that are ours. Don't refuse this person who's speaking. Because we are receiving this, such an inheritance, because we are receiving what was promised, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and worship God acceptably. Uh, again, in the language of Hebrews, draw near to God with thankfulness and holiness. But not just in a life that's characterized, uh, but not, not just in the sense of like in a formal way on a, on a Sunday morning, but with a life that's characterized by worship and thankfulness and reverence to God. Now at this point, the, the original audience and you guys are probably thinking, okay, so what does that look like? What is it, you know, how, do we, how do we do that? And that's where chapter 13 comes in. It's going to say, keep loving each other. Don't forget to be hospitable. Uh, the first one is love your brothers and sisters. The second one is love strangers, which is their idiom for be hospitable. Remember, identify with those in prison. Keep your marriage pure. Don't love money. Be content with what you have. Imitate the faith of your leaders. Don't be carried away by all kinds of other teachings. Be strengthened by grace. Identify with Jesus and his disgrace. Offer the sacrifice of praise. Do good. Share with others. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to them. Okay, so these come rapid fire, quick, but these kind of are ways that he wants these people to flesh this out. So I, I would say if, if, you, if you're looking for something to kind of unite these, these ideas, we see a couple times that these people are doing what is, that these, these ex exhortations are what please God. So at the end there in chapter 13, he prays that they might do his will and do that which is pleasing in his sight. And also in 16, these sacrifice, doing good, sharing what you have, and the other exhortations here, they're pleasing to God. So th this is how someone could live a life that's pleasing to God.
So with that, we're really done with the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's been quite a journey. I think it's been helpful. But I think we need to make sure that we live in the same way as these people who had their eye fixed on the promises that are going to be theirs when they finish their race and receive that from the Lord. Despise, think nothing of the ostracization that you might get here in this society. Um, don't worry about what the world thinks of you and who you are because you've got this in mind. Look to that. Keep that in mind. Keep that as your goal. You're looking for the city of God where God dwells and you will be able to spend all of eternity with him. That is a prize and a better possession. So we need to go after it. So my last exhortation to you is, Jesus says you're a fool if you hear the word and you don't do it. Don't put it into practice. James is going to tell us we're basically idiots if we look in a mirror and go away and forget what, we're, forget what we look like. The same way, someone who looks at the word, understands what it says, and then walks away and doesn't do it, he's an idiot. So don't be a fool and an idiot. Think about how you're going to take what you've learned. I'm speaking to myself how am I going to take this and apply it to my life? What am I going to do to finish my race well? What am I going to do to plan on five years from now be pursuing Jesus Christ? What am I going to do so that in 10 years I'm pursuing Jesus Christ? So that in 10 years I know that my goal is to reach the city of God where God dwells and I can dwell with him fully and finally. There's going to be a sin along the way, but we've got a great high priest He's perfected us. He's cleaned our consciences so that we can really go after this. Don't worry about the, the world says, what man is going to think about doing this or that because you're committed to who Jesus Christ is. Finish the race. The last, again, we, I've said this several times as we've been talking. You need the brothers and sisters that are sitting next to you to make this happen. You're not gonna, in 10 years, you're not gonna be running this race. You're not gonna finish your race if you're not with them. Not just going to church, like just showing up on a Sunday, but meaningfully interacting, talking with people, talking with your brothers and sisters about what, what you're doing to pursue Jesus Christ. Okay, we need to be done. Um, so I would just, I would just end with, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.